Today I'm going to talk about some questions um, that have come in that revolve around the subject of homosexuality. And these, are, the, these questions are incredibly personal and they're, they're very meaningful to our cultural moment in America, in, in the Western Hemisphere, and, and in the West in general, um, in Europe. And there's, there's, there's questions about how sexuality and how human sexuality is supposed to work. And these questions, uh, I, I think, as I want to, I mean, I, it's not that I really love talking about difficult and complex issues, but I think we have to be the people of God who are willing to have the conversations that are difficult to have. And I'm modeling for you the fact that I'm willing to have the conversation with you. You have a, a little piece of paper that you can take notes on. There are no fill-in-the-blanks on that piece of paper because I, I don't think this is a fill-in-the-blank discussion. There are, there, are, there are nuances to this discussion that we have to acknowledge. And then we have to come down at the end of the discussion on what the scriptures say. I'm going to talk about that. But it's a hard discussion to have. Here, I'm going to read the question. My question is something that is oftentimes difficult to talk about, the card says. Especially living in Austin, probably nearly every one of us has a friend or knows someone living a homosexual lifestyle. Our city is saturated in it, and we are made to believe that if we are against homosexuality, we are being hateful or intolerant, even though the Bible clearly states that it is a sin. Therefore, my question is, how do we approach speaking out about this subject to those who we love, particularly those who believe that homosexuality is not a choice? I know this is a tough question. <laughs> Thank you for considering it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the first thing I want to say about this subject is we haven't spoken about this very well as Christians in our culture over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And maybe even historically, we, we, have, we haven't necessarily done a great job. If you've been hurt by the church in regards to this conversation, I want to say that I'm sorry. I want to apologize on behalf of the church. We are, the church is full of people. We are people in process, figuring out how to, announce the kingdom of God and how to let it live in us just like you are. And so I'm, I'm sorry that that's happened to you. Please allow us, please allow me one chapel to reframe the conversation for you, to let the, the dialogue happen in a, a better way. On one level, this question that was asked, it's, it's um, representative of several questions that I got on this subject. But in one sense, it's very easy to answer because we as God's people should treat all people with respect and kindness and we should treat them with equality. Christians should be the ones who defend the marginalized and the mistreated of our society. And, and we should be the ones to demonstrate love and humility when it comes to people who don't agree with us. 
But somehow in this dialogue, we haven't always been gracious. And we haven't always had humility. I think that's a mistake. We must be, however, the people of God who are willing to tell the truth with grace. And with compassion in our hearts as Jesus had compassion with the masses who were struggling, trying to figure out the way of the kingdom. Interestingly enough, when you have this dialogue or conversation with someone, when you have a friend who would um, classify themselves as gay, when you have a gay friend, when you have somebody you know and love, and you have this conversation, it ch when the, the fact that you have a friendship changes the tone and the temper of the conversation, and that's as it should be. When we depersonalize this conversation, we, we damage people. And so we, need, we have to, as God's people, be more careful and compassionate with our words. Now, there's, there's no story in the Bible that maybe articulates this better than the, um, the Good Samaritan. If we look at the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, many of you know this story. For those of you who don't, Jesus is telling a story, and he begins to tell it to uh, really people who are influenced by a Jewish frame of mind, all right? And he, he, he says there's a man who got robbed, and he was left for dead on the side of the road, and he couldn't get up, and he was beaten up, and he was bloodied. And so there, uh, another guy came down the road, and the road was dangerous. It was a road to Jericho, and a, a, guy, a guy came down the road, and he was, a, he was a Levite. He was a Levite, and so he was from the, the, the tribe of Levi, and that means he was responsible for taking care of things in the temple. And, and this helps cl classify and clarify what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a religious person coming down the road. And the Bible says the guy turned on the other side of the road and didn't help the guy. And then uh, the next guy who comes is a priest. And it's a, kind of another level of authority within the religious um, environment that they lived in. And here comes a priest, and he doesn't stop to help the man. He, he bypasses him on the other side of the road. Sort of as an indication that I, I, I either can't, and, and I can't stop for this or I don't want to be um, tainted. I don't, I, don't, I don't have time or, or I just, this is not my role. I mean, any of the hearers could have been thinking those kinds of thoughts. Why didn't those guys stop? What's up with that? And in the, hearer of Je the hearers of Jesus, in, in, when they were listening to the story, they, they could have been thinking, I know, who he's, I know who's coming next. I know who's coming next. It's going to be a Pharisee. You've got a Levite, you've got a priest, and then you've got a Pharisee. The Pharisees of all people, they're the most rigid. They're the most committed to the scriptures. They are the ones who know it the best, and they hold us all accountable for it. The Pharisee is going to come and be the one. Jesus, in a shocking twist, turns the story on its head and says, and then a Samaritan comes and helps the man takes care of him, leaves some money for him, makes sure that he's going to be taken care of in the future. The You've got to understand how deeply the divide was between the Samaritans and the Jews to understand what Jesus was trying to do in this story. And sometimes we don't understand it. And you have to realize it was kind of like being a UT fan versus a Texas A&M fan. Right? There's this, there's this thing that he was dealing with there 
And what we learn from it is we should be willing to associate with people who are on the other side of the cultural divide. And we should always take care of people in need in a spirit of love and hope and dignity because these are people God loves, right? So I'm saying things that are obvious. But I think this conversation has been convoluted, confused by politics. So we have this political discussion about homosexuality. It skews the dialogue. There's one example, you know, health care for partners of same-sex couples. And in my opinion, probably the question that should be asked when we're fighting about this politically is, should Christians, people of the kingdom, be against people receiving health care? That seems to put us on the wrong side of the argument. So just because you belong to a certain political party <laughs> does not mean that you can claim the truth of the kingdom. And both parties try to do it. And I think we have to ask ourselves deeper question and clarify what is going on here. What are we arguing about, really? I know we're arguing about taxes. I know we're arguing about my taxes being used for something that I don't agree with. Hey, can I clue you in? Taxes are used for stuff you don't agree with all the time. <laughs> all the time. And so to pinpoint this issue and be against people receiving health care seems foolish. The gay marriage movement in our country has been difficult for Christians to navigate because, of course, we define, I, I, I believe evangelical Christians define marriage as between a man and a woman, according to the scriptures. And that's, I think, the correct view. But the question is, how do we wrestle with this biblical definition in a pluralistic society that doesn't believe the Bible? And so we have to come up with better dialogue about this national conversation. I, I'm of the opinion, you know, in terms of marriage, right? I, every marriage that I do, when I stand up and I officiate a wedding, I start by saying, this is a Christian wedding, and I want to define that for you. Because a Christian wedding is not about health care or tax breaks. <laughs> it's not about uh, anything that the state wants to say. It never has been. Marriage has always been sacred before God. And so a Christian marriage is... It represents that sacredness, and so we say vows to him and to each other according to the scriptures, right? And I clarify that when I say it's not about tax breaks, people always laugh. Because marriage, we've sort of lost our definition in culture. But that's not the end of the world. The kingdom of God is much stronger than the definition of one word. God's still at work with pe in people. And so, I think sometimes we've tried to oversimplify the discussion, and, and that leads me to point number two, in that human sexuality can often be quite complex. It is, it is, it is really have complexities that make it um, unique. It, 
other, uh, other things that the Bible would qualify as sin also have complexities, but this is one in this cultural moment that we have to navigate. We've typically just said as Christians, it's a choice. It's a choice, and you need to choose different. That's an oversimplification of their journey. The, the argument against this is summed up no better than Lady Gaga in her song, Born This Way. She may be one of the best representatives of that point of view. And people everywhere are singing it. But the truth is, many, many gay people have said that they wish they hadn't been born that way. I've spoken to them. I've heard them say it. They would never have chosen it because it has created so much pain in their lives. One recent example I read of, I was reading about is Vicki Beeching, who is a worship leader and songwriter that lived several years in Nashville, and she's from Great Britain, and, and she tells a story. She came out as gay just recently um, at 35 years old. Churches everywhere sing her songs, and, and she's, she's lived in this environment where deep personal pain has been caused by, by others, and, and her own questions have been very difficult to deal with and, and, and deal with, with, and for the most part, she has dealt with them in isolation. And that's a very sad journey. But when we come down to it, it's not just about this issue that we should talk about. We should, we should see it from an overarching perspective. We should see it from the lens of what's happening in our culture sexually. Point three is we live in a culture of sexualized relationships. And our entire culture has been and is being sexualized in almost every way. And the desire for public school districts to ask a pointed question about who you're attracted to as a child is an attempt to sexualize every feeling and attraction. And this is problematic, right? But, th but this is an overarching problem. This happens in movies. This happens in everywhere you look, all over the internet, pornography, uh, uh, all kinds of multi-billion dollar industries are sort of pushing sex to each one of us. And so this is kind of the greater problem, that we're lifting the created above the creator. And this, um, this, this process of sexualizing everything has made it so that we, that we don't know how to be friends we don't know how to be friends. We, we, every attraction is interpreted through a sexual lens, and therefore it's difficult for men to have intimate, deep, and meaningful relationships without it creating weirdness. Man card. See, that's a problem. We need to have deep and meaningful friendships and relationships, intimate relationships with members of, the op members of the same sex without it creating all the sexual overtones. And so the question for us as believers is, what is the role of sex and sexual identity in human relationships? We've equated intimacy often with sex. 
And in this way, we open up the idea that any intimate relationship is going to end up in sex. So here's, now, here's what I believe. I believe the Bible gives us the best coaching for human relationships and gives us many trustworthy examples and case studies on how relationships should and should not function. And when we read it, we hold that God's point of view is expressed here and we take it for what it says. So the question all of us have to answer, no matter how we classify ourselves, is do we believe that God has the best design on human relationships? And do we believe that the scriptures are trustworthy? That's foundational to this whole discussion. But the thing you have to remember is there's a whole world out here that doesn't even believe this is a legitimate book. That it doesn't have the, 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 the authority and the power that we say it does. So we have to ask three clarifying questions to try to help. Because I'm trying to answer, I'm trying to answer multiple questions here. I'm, not, I'm trying to answer how do we discuss it in a way that is articulate and compassionate. And how do we deal with it within our own ranks. So what do we mean by gay is a good question. When you say, when a person says, I'm, I'm gay, what does that mean? Because there's a lot of different um, ideas about what that means. There are three ideas that I think we should explore, all right? The, the, and those three ideas are the action, the activity of, of, of homosexuality, the attraction, should be that something that is internal and, and sort of drives people, and then the probably the most profound concept we have to wrestle with is identity. It's not just as simple as, as, and cut and dried as, as we, we have wanted to say. The, so let's talk about the action. The action, is not, the action is not God's design, and the scripture articulates that pretty clearly, nor is it his best plan for us. The Bible clearly indicates that sexual fulfillment happens in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's what the Bible indicates, and it indicates it th from the beginning, even though there are broken people all over the place <laughs> throughout the scriptures, it indicates it from the beginning in Genesis all the way to the end. And so the attraction to same-sex relationships is not really, when we, when we, when we try to figure out what is that, what does that look like? If, if, if the activity is not having, what is the attraction then? I don't think the attraction should be qualified as too much different than the attraction that people have to other things like greed or selfishness or stealing or fornication. There are many men who are attracted to women who are not their wives. That's still an issue that they have to wrestle with. And so, here's what I want to say. There need not be fundamental shame in being gay in terms of attraction, right? Or even the action for that matter, because many of us have engaged in actions or we have felt attractions that would want to shame us, haven't we? The truth is, 
the body of Christ, at one chapel especially, we need to break this thing that causes shame in our lives where we want to hold secrets, are not willing to share with people, with each other, the very deepest, most meaningful struggles of our lives. We have to break that open and, and, and break off shame from our lives, from, from dealing with that and letting other people know about it. This is how the body of Christ is supposed to work. Vulnerability creates community, which creates the opportunity for Jesus to work inside those relationships. That's what we have to have. And so there need not be undue shame with being tempted with this sin or any other sin. But before we too quickly compare this to every other temptation, we should pause. Because often the struggle has to do with identity. And uh, the identity of being gay is what complicates the discussion, I think. In our culture, uh, sexual identity becomes very defining in this regard. And people's sexual orientation becomes the chief way that they begin to classify themselves or articulate themselves. It is the supreme identifier. And therefore, since that's true in our culture, as God's people, we have to be, we have to be sensitive, articulate, and careful about how we relate to that friend who sees himself through that lens and begin to, little by little, share the good news of the kingdom of God. In many cases, they are very alienated from the church. They've been mistreated. They, they, they know this. They feel it. They're wounded. They, they understand where you come from, and they've indoctrinated themselves <laughs> with their way of thinking. And in some cases, they are incredibly angry. So that's going to take time for you to walk with them. We as Christians, we always want to tie it up in a nice little bow. We want to close the deal. We want to share the good news. And they prayed the prayer, and then we're good, and then we're done. Okay, you, you know yourself well enough to know that wasn't it, right? There, there is a journey here and there's a process. The thing that we can't give up, the thing that we can't relinquish or release to this way of thinking in our culture is that God has the power and the authority to change a person. That he designed us, he knows us better than we know ourselves, and there is power that comes from the Holy Spirit and it comes from the scripture and comes through the community of Christ that is strong enough for people to change. I've had several conversations with men who would say they are gay Christians. And this is where I think it gets really confusing because we're, we're sort of, interpreting the Bible in a certain way, and, and I'm going to talk about that here in a second, but there's a, there's a thing that I always warn them about that I say, you know, no, I don't think you should classify yourself as a gay Christian. I, I don't go around saying I'm a heterosexual Christian. <laughs> All right, now, why don't I do that? Because I think when it comes to identity, our first and only identity must be the identity of Christ. Right, so no other identity. And make no mistake, you guys are just as guilty as those, the folks who claim their sexual orientation as their supreme identity. Because many of you and I, many of you and myself as well, we end up falling into the trap of identifying ourselves or 
getting our identity from our careers, getting our identity from how much money we have, getting our identity from, our, from the family of origin that we come from, and, and whether that was uh, healthy and happy or abusive, we take on an identity. And what Christ came to do is change all that, to eliminate that and to make his identity your identity. And his nature, your nature, our nature. So when we come to Christ, we drop every identifier and accept that we, uh, that we are all, we are all identified as Christ, Christ's um, brothers and sisters. And his, his, we, are, we belong to his family. Okay, so if we look at that, I don't think sexual orientation should be the identifier of who we are, first and foremost. And as, as soon as I say that, I know that people, this is a deep and difficult subject and ca- has caused much pain in people's lives when I, when I say this very thing. But we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible reveal? Let's talk about what the Bible reveals. Galatians 3.26, all right? Here, you thought we'd never get there. Here we are. Galatians 3.26 says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Clothed yourselves with Christ. We put on the clothing of Christ. We put on what he, who he is and what he did. There is neither, there, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus was praying in John 17 he said father make them one like we are one he was saying take on the identity that we want them to take on the identity that we have that we share together so the issue here then is one of lordship and surrender not self-expression and self-identity our calling is to lay down everything to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily is what luke 9 23 says Luke 9.23 says, check this out. Luke 9.23 says, we should deny ourselves. Here's the problem. That goes for all of us. (laughs) And the idea of self-denial is not a very embraced one in Western Christianity. (laughs) In fact, we've created other theologies that compete against this. says God wants to give you everything that's, that's good and we can't imagine him giving us something or an opportunity that comes along where we have to deny ourselves in order to yield to him. Listen, all of us have to embrace a theology of self-denial because it is where Christ begins to be revealed. He begins to work his way in us and live in us. And so I believe here is where the discussion becomes so challenging. And and so the, the attraction is really not the issue. It is the identity. We must not allow the changing of the meaning of the scriptures. Our goal as Christians is to announce that the kingdom of God has come and that there is a way of living that the Bible describes as full of life. Abundant life where we surrender to Christ and trust his sacrifice, all right? So let's talk about this idea of why we believe this way, all right? 1 Corinthians 6, if you go over there, let me share this with you. 1 Corinthians 6 says, verse 9 says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
what? Wrongdoers? I've done wrong. How do I receive the kingdom of God? I, received it through, I receive it through faith in Christ. But he's saying wrongdoers don't, don't receive the inheritance of the kingdom of God without that faith. So he says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, or, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, if you have your pen, you should take it and underline it in your Bible. Check it out. And that is what some of you were. And that is what some of you were. You know what that means? That means change is possible. Without condemnation, without shame, without, without, without this, I mean, with a process the Holy Spirit can work inside of a person. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Everybody say washed. Say sanctified. And you were justified. You can say that too. <laughs> washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul is speaking to Christians here, not to people who are not part of the community of faith. We know from 1 Corinthians, the first several chapters, that these people were in some kind of process because he's coaching the church not to be immoral, not to sue each other in the court of law. <laughs> he's, he's talking about the, the, the value of the unity of the body of Christ. He's talking about how to treat one another, and he's challenging them in this passage to understand how the kingdom of God works. And so he's not talking about He's not thinking of Christians becoming gay, but individuals, he's talking to individuals who have come from a homosexual lifestyle who need to know that the lifestyle, that lifestyle is no longer who they are. It's no longer who they are. It's, it's not their identity. There are now, check this out, different options available to you. Well, I like these older options. And this struggle of surrender is what we have to embrace as God's people. And if we will embrace it, look, if we will embrace it, if we'll embrace, embrace surrender for our own lives, because in surrender is a certain amount of pain, a certain amount of struggle with wanting things the way we want them to be. We need to wrestle so that we understand the struggle that goes on in others, regardless of what they're facing, regardless of what's going on in them. And so in verse, in, in chapter 7, if you, go, if you go just one chapter over, Paul the Apostle continues the dialogue and he's saying, um, I want to highlight for you the, the value and the dignity of being celibate, of being celibate, of, of being single. And he holds himself out as a as an option, and listen, it, we, have, we have unknowingly, maybe, as the church, created an idol out of marriage. We've created an idol out of marriage by saying that it is the supreme expression and fulfillment of all relationships, because it includes sex. Do you know that's a problem? If we say that, do we... Do we, under, do we think that Jesus had fulfilling and intimate relationships with all the people he 
walked the earth with? Of course he did. Paul is dignifying becoming celibate. I want to tell you, and the, the people that are single in this room, people that are single at One Chapel, I want to dignify what God is doing in your life. And I want to hold it up as good and meaningful and special. And I want you to feel that dignity, even though we have to, we, we're wrestling with all kinds of other issues regarding our families and our kids and rearing children and all that kind of stuff. But there is a place for you. And some of you are like, no, don't speak that over me. I don't want to be celibate the rest of my life. <laughs> but even that can become an idol that causes you pain. So Paul continues through the letter, and as he's writing to the Corinthian church, he gets to the end, and he's saying, look, the resurrection is coming. Because you don't, it's not, life isn't all about the body you have right now. The body that's coming is going to be different. You're going to be relieved of the pain and the brokenness of this body. We should not be ashamed of the brokenness that we live in and the brokenness that is part of our temptations and part of our struggle, but there is a solution. There is an answer. His name is Jesus. I am getting old. My body's wearing out. I ran two miles this last week and my knees were killing me. I'm like, two miles? That's nothing. What's wrong with me? Well, I'm, my body is not what everything revolves around. The pleasure of this body is not what my life revolves around. The brokenness of our society is represented in the brokenness of my body. I'm getting older. It's breaking down. Gravity is having its perfect work. But there's faith and hope because there is something coming. That very idea defines us as Christians. It's not about just about the here and now. It's about the here and now and what God is doing and the bringing of the kingdom that will come. All right, I got to keep moving here. Um, so what is our disagreement really about? What's our disagreement really about? This, uh, these, these ideas, what are we really arguing over? Here's how Christians affirm, who affirm a gay lifestyle interpret the New Testament, all right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of frame this for you. Here's how Christians who say, I'm, I'm, I'm gay and I think God's okay with it. Here's how they interpret the New Testament, right? The verses we just read. Number one, they, they will say homosexuality in the early centuries was exploitive. It was, it was taking advantage of other people. It had to do with young boys being part of their lives as well as their wives, right? That's what, it, that's what the Bible refers to when it says homosexuality, right? That's, that would be their argument. And they would say the Bible could not have imagined that there would be committed, monogamous, homosexual relationships. It wasn't even in their sphere of thinking. They, they weren't as developed as we are today. C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. The people that were from the New Testament era, they're, they're not as smart as we are, and so they're not as, as progressive. And, and this is how they would interpret the, the New Testament. Here's why it's not sound. Here's why that doesn't work. Number one, there were instances of monogamous relationships that were homosexual, and one of them was Nero. <laughs> Nero, who was 
this, um, this man in charge of the Roman world, he married a man twice. One was a freedman, and Nero took the role of a wife in the ceremony. And that's, that's, that's history. That's, that happened in AD 64. So it's not true. There, there, there were these kinds of thought patterns in that day. And Paul had every opportunity and maybe even the incentive to include examples of gay marriages. When he talked about marriage, he had every opportunity to include it, but he didn't. He was a single man. He, he had the opportunity to say, look, this is okay and this is not in regards to homosexuality, but he used in every case, he talked about men and women, and he talked about how God's overarching view is people of difference, people who have differences, people who are different from each other, fundamentally come together in the holiness and sacredness of marriage, and that is the power of the idea that o- that's overarching in the scripture. The narrative of scripture in Genesis, of male and female, of the bride and the bridegroom in Revelation, all throughout the Bible, the, the uh, opposites coming together in Ephesians, Paul talks about it, he says the, talks about the Jew and the Gentile, he talks about the husbands and wives, and he talks about slaves and masters, just like he does in Galatians. And, and this is an important idea. In the scriptures, he could have used any other analogy. He could have gave an exception, but he did not. So what this means, what does this mean about our disagreement with this issue? I, I, I love this. this is, I got this from Glenn Packiam, who's a good friend of mine, who was talking about this subject uh, recently. And he said, he said the, the, the difference between our views of scripture is not just an interpretation. It is a posture towards scripture. It's not just a different interpretation, it's a posture. And the posture that we embrace is that we stand under the scripture. It is raised to authority in our lives. And we yield to what it says. So we stand under it. What others do is they try to stand over it and project onto it what they want to see. The authority of the scripture has to come down upon our experience and we have to line ourselves up. It can't be the other way around. And as hard as that might be in our culture, the question is, will we be willing to stand firm? So does this, what does this mean? Does this, or what are you saying, Pastor Ross? Are you saying that Christians who think, who, gay Christians, you think they're going to hell? I got good news for you, people. I don't have to make that decision. <laughs> and neither do you. It's not really your job. (laughs) We don't have to decide. There is one who is completely merciful and completely just, and he knows their journey better than we do. And so we have to trust him in that. Tim Keller has a great quote. He says, homosexuality doesn't send you to hell any more than heterosexuality sends you to heaven. It's about lordship. It's about lordship, surrendering to God. Billy Graham says it beautifully. He says that Holy Spirit convicts, God is the judge. 
and I'm called to love. The Holy Spirit convicts, God is the judge, and I'm called to love. So I want to leave you with three challenging questions. I'm going to take like four minutes to do it. Can you stay with me for four minutes? It's a little bit of a heavy subject, right? I, I understand that. Um, and you're not used to hearing somebody say so directly, um, maybe in our culture, what they think about this subject. We're going to have to get better at that. Three challenging questions. Here it is. Would you be willing to listen? Would you be willing to listen to someone and their experience and their journey and ask great questions and listen to the where they are before diagnosing <laughs> and, and dispensing the solution to their problem? Would you allow them the dignity of of having the conversation with you by listening? It's true with everyone. I mean, no matter who we are, we all have to listen to what's going on in the life of the other person before we start dispensing the, the advice. Oh, I had that happen to me. And that, no, it didn't happen to you like that. They have a totally different experience. Be careful about how that happens. We look to the scripture, but we don't just dispense advice without listening and without dignifying them as a person. Pay attention. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Listen to him and lead you to what to say. Number two, would you be willing to learn? Would you be willing to learn what the Bible says about this subject and about our culture? Would you be willing to become a cultural student of how our culture works? Would you be willing, willing to kind of uncover what it means to be in a post-Christian era and what our responsibilities are as a result of that. Would you be willing to learn and not just use the phrases and the sayings of your youth to describe and explain what you believe? Would you, become, would you be willing to become more articulate and learn how to coach and learn how to encourage? Would you be willing to become more prepared, more engaged, more confident in what you believe? I think that's what's going to be required of us. And then finally, would you be willing to lead? Okay, think about this with me. If we believe that God's direction and design of human relationships is what keeps society together, then when it starts to unravel, Who's going to be around for people to turn to? In some ways, we've set ourselves up so poorly in this current environment to be countercultural because we've built church after church after church with liturgies that made people feel as comfortable as possible and, and as the least amount of tension possible for them to meet who Jesus is. And suddenly now we're called upon to be this countercultural agent in the kingdom of God. The problem is, many of the countercultural warriors have been the most loudest and rudest among us. There must be a better way, and we have to be the ones who will stand firm in what we believe, full of compassion, full of grace, but full of truth, be able to talk about it with people, be able to walk with them, be able to have a relationship and a conversation instead of a yelling match, or instead of ignoring it because it's too touchy. we got to be willing to talk about it. 
We need to be the people of God who are thoughtful, compassionate, and unwavering in the convictions that God designed us and knows best how we should function and relate to each other. Close your eyes and bow your heads, and I want to pray for you. Father, would you teach us? Teach us. We're committed, Lord, to learn. Would you help us? Help us to lead. Help us to be willing to be the people that will trust you and will be firm in our convictions. But Lord, we need help in how we do this. Help, would you help us to listen? Would you, would you help us to have dialogue with our culture? Would you help us to, to allow your peace to sort of bathe every conversation that we have? And even the difficult ones, Lord, would you give us courage to begin to share what's really true in our hearts?